going on everybody happy turkey day to y'all hopefully you guys enjoyed a great thanksgiving dinner with your family or endured it depending on on what your situation is so i got a little bit of bad news for you unfortunately there is not going to be a roundup with mark and i today we're taking a little bit of time away from the computers and screen to connect with family however couldn't leave you guys high and dry without any content so what i did was found a great episode that my colleague Jack Farley, who hosts Forward Guidance with BlockWorks recorded, it's with Joseph Wang and William White. They really get into the whole concept of sovereign debt. You guys are all going to love this. Hand-selected this one for you. Also, if you haven't checked out Forward Guidance, Jack is a phenomenal interviewer. He's got a really great slate of content on Forward Guidance coming up. We've got Daniel DeMartino Booth, Felix Zuloff, David Rubenstein, all episodes that are coming up. This is a little sneak preview for all of you. So definitely go uh, check it out and subscribe to his show. I wanted to give a quick shout out to Curve. They're the sponsor of this episode. They're the all-in-one credit card solution, which allows you to manage and track your cash flow much, much easier. Huge fan of this platform. You're gonna be hearing all about them later in the show. For now, on with the program. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. William White and Joseph Wang. Gentlemen, great to have you both here. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's an honor to meet Will. For guys if you don't, who don't know, and I can't believe if you don't, uh, Will is one of the smartest people in the central banking community. He has a very, very deep history, and he's been prescient on many of his calls, so you definitely want to hear what he has to say. I completely agree. Uh, Dr. William White is currently a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute in Toronto, Canada. But Bill, you've worked at the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada. You were head of the Monetary and Economic Committee uh, at the Bank of International Settlement, which is the central bank, two central banks. Uh, you also had senior position at the OECD, known as an insider in the central banking communi community, but also something as a renegade, someone who can give polite but very stern pointed critiques of the central banking practice. And uh, Joseph, uh, you, of course, uh, former senior trader at the Federal Reserve, author at uh, fedguide.com. I'm so glad to have you here. You guys have a, actually a lot in common in terms of you both were on my podcast, Forward Guidance, about a year ago at a time when inflation was 5 or 6% and rising and interest rates globally were at 0% or in Europe and Japan and US were at 0%. And there was a, a giant mismatch there. And you had some thoughts about that mismatch that aged quite well. well. Uh, Bill, looking back over the past years where the Federal Reserve has hiked quite dramatically, what has stood out to you? Well, I, I think um, <clears throat> I think what stood out was, uh, in effect, what you've just already alluded to, which was that uh, you had uh, actual inflation having gone up so much, and yet eliciting such a, a, a mild, indeed non-existent response for a long period of time from the central banks, which I thought was uh, pretty amazing, and I I guess it it probably had to do with an excessive reliance on models that basically said, you know, the economy will very quickly go back to the position that we want it to be in, which is sort of full employment and inflation on target. Uh, but I think they were totally, totally misled. And of course, what they've done subsequently is uh, been an attempt to catch up. So the, the reaction has been, in terms of rates of increase, has been much more aggressive than I think anything that we've seen in recent decades. And um, that, of course, has elicited in turn a lot of concern about uh, uh, whether the speed of the movement, uh, as opposed to just the increase in the level, 
that the speed of the movement is going to cause problems going forward. And so now, of course, there's a big debate about whether they've done enough, whether they should moderate, whether, you know, so the jury's still out on uh, whether how this is all going to work out. And Bill, what does your gut say? Do you think the Federal Reserve central banks, in order to fight inflation, have they tightened monetary policy enough? Is it Goldilocks? Have they, have they done enough or have they done uh, too much? First you, Bill, and then Joseph. Well, I, I think probably what they should do is to continue to raise interest rates uh, whilst keeping a close eye, of course, on what the implications are, uh, perhaps in a more moderate way. Um, and I guess I would also say, and I know this is sort of part of the, the, the toolkit now that they've got, is this issue of quantitative tightening, which I think they probably should, they should approach that a bit more cautiously uh, than, than the raising of interest rates. Uh, I think there's just enormous uncertainty at the moment about the functioning of markets and what the implications of quantitative tightening might be. So um, as the French would say, uh, dans le doute, abstiens-toi. If you don't know what's going on, you should be a bit careful. <laughs> you know, I, I agree with that completely, especially the quantitative tightening aspect. As, as we've been discussing on the show for some time, Jack, quantitative tightening uh, has the potential to be very disruptive into the markets. When we look at the treasury market, liquidity is very poor, issuance is very high. And the outlook of inflation is very uncertain. We've already seen the 10-year steadily trend higher and many measures of market liquidity are, are not good. And under those circumstances, you can easily have huge disallocations like what you saw in the repo market in 2019 and what you saw in the gilt market uh, just a few weeks ago. So it's definitely something that uh, we should keep in mind. Again, when you're thinking about the Fed, as Bill suggested, they, they look at the world through models. And I think Governor Waller just a few months ago or a few weeks ago went on and said that, you know, according to his view, his model suggests that, you know, doing $2 trillion in quantitative tightening is about the same as 50 basis points in Fed hikes. You know, I, I suspect he's going to be very, very wrong about that. Um, but and to your broader question about whether or not the Fed is doing enough, Jack, I think of monetary policy having both a stock and a flow effect, uh, the stock effect being the wealth effect. So when you hike rates, suddenly a lot of assets get revalued. We see some stock market going lower. We see treasury uh, fixed income selling off. And that effect seems to have mostly passed. I mean, we're off the lows in basically everything now. And inflation is, is still not, now. It seems to be coming down a little bit, but still pretty elevated. I think we're going to have to rely on the flow effect now. And when I say flow, I mean the additional credit creation that's going to stem from higher rates. And that doesn't seem to be moderating either. It's possible because inflation is high. So real rates are still very low. So people are continue to borrow. The bigger picture for me, though, is that the fiscal situation, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on, it seems like we're moving into a world that maybe we may be tilting toward fiscal dominance. And if that's the case, then, you know, inflation is going to be largely determined by what the Congress, what Congress does, what the fiscal authorities do. Dr. White, you said the, the Fed and central banks ought, they might be careful with quantitative t tightening. That is, uh, they did enormous amounts of quantitative easing during the great financial crisis and during uh, March 2020, the, the pandemic crisis. And now they are just have really started to wind down their, their balance sheets. And why is winding down the balance sheets letting up to $95 billion of, of securities sort of uh, fall off from the Federal Reserve's balance sheet? Why is that something that 
central bankers should be careful with. And you know, if I might propose you the question during your career and for since the history of central banking, uh, central bank balance sheets were nowhere close to eight trillion dollars. And financial stability, while not great, you know, it, it did okay. Why is sort of letting the balance sheet roll off even a little bit, you know, not even $100 billion a month, why is that potentially such a, a bad and uh, insta- unst- uh, force of instability? As, as, as you know, Jack, I, I'm sort of um, an advocate of the fact that most systems are complex adaptive systems. And that implies that they're systems that have got tipping points in them. And as Joseph mentioned earlier on, there's just so many signs of stress inside the markets. And I think it's stress that is induced really by the way in which the markets operate, you know, something endogenous to the markets. And uh, we've seen all of these, um, you know, these flash crashes. I mean, this goes back a number of years now, right? You know, you have price movements that are way outside what you'd expect from a normal distribution. We've got these flash crashes. We've got anomalies in the system where sort of normal arbitrage conditions like uh, um, covered interest parity hasn't applied for years. Uh, and then we've had these sort of almost uh, total breakdowns in some of the markets. You know, think about the, 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 the treasury market and when it was it the, the fall of 2019, the spring of 2020. Then we had this other more recent bout. Uh, Joseph mentioned liquidity is very low in, in, in many markets, not just the, the market for U.S. Treasuries, even worse in many other markets. And so <clears throat> you, you, you have the sort of sense really almost of an accident waiting to happen. So in that kind of environment, it seems to me one wants to be a bit careful. And there has been a recent piece that I thought was impressive by uh, Raghu Rajan and um, um, uh, Viral uh, Charia, in which they point out that because the banks have had so much excess liquidity and so many reserves, they felt it easy to, to say to their clients, well, we'll backstop you in terms of liquidity requirements. So they've got a big increase in sort of open-ended demands on credit. And so it means that their demand for reserves went way up during the period of time when the supply of reserves went way up. And what <clears throat> Ragu and, and uh, Viral point out is that they can, they can close those, those lines down, but it takes time. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, in the interval, um, as you're trying to reduce the reserves, you better be sort of careful that you're not going to reduce them beyond the point at which the demand is reducing, in which case you will get a big spike in rates and that could cause a problem. So it's that kind of reasoning that leads me to say, you know, gentlemen, we should be careful about this. The, the other thing, the other point to make, too, is that if you believe in complex adaptive systems, okay, that's the kind of model that you're dealing with. These things don't work symmetrically, you know, so that you put stuff in and stuff happens. And so you can't just simply say, well, I'll just take out, I'll just reverse what I did before. Because there's a there's something has happened because of what you've done. So the system is now different and maybe less stable afterwards than it was before. So all of this stuff leads me to say that's an area where you should be particularly cautious. Yeah, I think one of the authors of that paper that Dr. White cites is uh, uh, Rajan, I believe. Well, when it, I heard a remark that he made once. And it, I thought it was very wise in that 
His remark was that what appears to be excess liquidity stops being excess liquidity because what happens is that the financial system basically expands to take advantage of all that. For example, uh, let's say you're a bank and you have a lot of excess cash on deposit at the Fed. Well, you, you don't want to just leave it there doing nothing. Maybe you, you put it to work and do something. And so eventually what is excess eventually ceases to be excess because the system is trying to be efficient. Right. And so when you're withdrawing what you perceive to be excess, it's actually not there. It's because the system has, itself has grown. So in, in fact, every bit of liquidity is actually needed. So that's something that we'll definitely have to watch to see how, how that unfolds. I think one of the things that I really agree with, uh, Dr. White is that the ec economy and the financial markets is, it's extremely, it's a complex adaptive system. And it seems like if something is complex and adaptive, it's always changing. That, that seems to me to make it, in a sense, place it beyond simple economic models. Because when you're modeling something, you're basically positing that relationships between variables are, are consistent. So if that, that works very well in something like physics. If I drop uh, a coin on the floor today, it's going to fall at 9.8 meters per second square. And that's the same, um, that's the same rate it will fall if I dropped it here in uh, New York or in London today or a hundred years ago. But if you have a financial system that's always changing, that relationship isn't going to be persistent. And so it's going to be very difficult to, to model. And so going back to Dr. White's one of the original points, maybe that entire approach by economists is part of the reason why we, we, we seem to be in the situation that we are in, where inflation is high and markets don't appear to be stable. Yeah. The, um, the, the great physicist, uh, uh, Feynman, once gave a, an inaugural uh, con con convocation address, I think, someplace on the West Coast, in which uh, he, he said, is, is physics hard? And he said, no, it's not really, because uh, just imagine how hard it would be if the molecules had feelings. And that's really when you get into the complex adaptive, the adaptive part of it, which is that uh, the, the people with feelings are constantly adapting to the circumstances in which they find themselves and how they feel about the circumstances in which they find themselves. So uh, the kind of modeling that we've done in the past is not, is not useful uh, in systems like that. And uh, I've been on record as uh, saying that uh, the problem is that the, the, the academics and the central bankers have made a, a profound ontological error. They have misread the nature of the system that they're trying to deal with. Yeah. And Bill, you recently made some remarks at the 25th Central Bank Macroeconomic Modeling Workshop. Um, by the way, all of your sort of speeches and papers can be found on williamwhite.ca. And you talk about this ontological error uh, about... You know, economists cannot forecast, and just forecasting is, is immensely difficult. I'd love for you to elaborate on that. And as well, you talk about how it's important to recognize non-linearities and endogeneities that are crucially important. And one example is the Phillips curve, uh, essentially, that it dictates that when unemployment is low, inflation will be high, and that when unemployment is high, inflation will be low. And there, I believe, over the past decade, a lot of academic studies that critiqued that historical relationship because... Unemployment was low over the prior decade, and inflation was not that high. But you, you have a fascinating point just about the nonlinearity. And I actually have been thinking about this myself, about how uh, uh, at, at, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tail risk there, where if unemployment is so low, uh, inflation can, can remain um, very high. So yeah, I'd love, I'd love your thoughts just on why economists are so wrong, and then also the, the Phillips curve in general. 
Can I can I start off with the, the the business about why economists are such bad forecasters? Please, please. Yeah. Well, the the the, the fundamental reason is that um, the system is complex and adaptive, and the models aren't. And the way the models work is that they're essentially linear. And then, so what that does is it sort of gives you extrapolation of what has been happening. And then you overlay on top of that the concept of equilibrium, that you go back to uh, the state of nature that you would like. Now, of course, in complex systems, there is no equilibrium. It doesn't work that way. But that's what the models say. So when you look at the forecasts, what you find is that they're almost universally you know, that uh, GDP continues to do its doing. And then if it's growing slower than what should be the normal, then you forecast growth will go up. And if inflation is below where the target is, then you forecast inflation will go up. And that really has two sort of implications. One, of course, the linear part of it is that there's no room for crises. So when you look at the economic forecasts, whether they were done by the IMF, the OECD, all of the central banks, they all totally missed the the crisis of 2008 and the European crisis of 2010. So I think the spring wheel, and I don't want to single out the IMF, they were no worse than anybody else. But I mean, the spring wheel in 2008, I think forecast the advanced market economies would grow at 3.7% in 2009. And the reality is it came in at minus 3.6. So it just totally got it wrong. And then it was when just you a typo, though. Just a typo, yeah, the typo, the, the plus for the minus. <laughs> and, and then, of course, in the subsequent 10 years, I think there was one year where it was not true. But in the subsequent 10 years, every year they forecast for the next year a higher rate of growth of GDP, real, and a higher inflation rate than actually materialized. And they did this 10 years in a row without going back to rethink whether the analytical framework that they were using was not somehow fundamentally flawed, which is extraordinary. And I mean, but this is, this is a problem not in economics. This is a problem in psychology. You know, at what point do you start to say, uh, I believe something, but it's obvious that it's not true. And so I have to think again. So that's that's really, in a way, the fundamental the fundamental problem with the forecasts. Absolutely, and that led to the f- central banks as well as market participants' forecast of interest rates to be very flawed. Uh, the, you know, the the forward rates, uh, the two year, the five year, were significantly higher uh, in their forecast than than actually were, were realized if you look at like the the dot plot uh, over yeah, the past no, decade. And then also another forecasting error that's that's great is during March April. May, June of 2020, forecasts were for extremely negative growth. And of course, not only did GDP rebound, it actually rebounded above trend. Who, who knew that when people were working from home, they tend to order a lot of stuff, Joseph? Yeah. And, and Jack, to, to, to um, Bill's point, I, that reminds me of Jim Bianco's excellent chart about no matter what happens to inflation, it always goes back to 2%. And so there's a chart that Jim Bianco has where whenever, so whenever inflation just goes higher and then just comes, come back down, no matter what. And if the forecast is wrong, it just means it'll peak a little bit higher and then just go back down. So no matter what happens, it can, inflation, according to their model, can only go back to 2%. 
yeah. because central banks are credible, because inflation expectations will, will come down. So, um, you know, that obviously has been very wrong and yes. the chart shows it, yeah. but it seems like they just keep going back to the same model with the same output. It's like they're you, not, you know, something, learning. something, something of which I'm not, um, terribly proud, but, um, Back in at the Bank of Canada when I was there, and we were we were really at the forefront of model building at the time, and uh, we were the people who first got the technical capacity to force those longer term constraints on the models that we were using, and uh, subsequently, of course, the Bank of Canada and people like Doug Laxton and others, we exported this all around the world. So uh, I'm here now as one of the biggest critics of something it turns out I was ultimately responsible for. So, um, so earlier on, I was both an insider and an outsider. Well, I guess I'm sort of both a winner and a loser in, in all of this. But So, Bill, how can we help the econ econ economics profession uh, evolve like you have it seems like at least the central banks and the academia still are stuck on, on that old framework. And my impression is it's very difficult to get people to change. I mean, the saying is mm -hmm. that academia uh, progresses one funeral at a time. Mm -hmm. The people who hold that view, they, um, you know, they, they, they hold all the power, they make the hiring decisions and they control who has tenure and so forth, and they can never be fired. So how do we, how do we evolve as a, as a, I don't know, profession? Now, that's a very um, that's a very tough question, Joseph. And um, I think one of the answers is that you just have to keep hammering away, uh, and that eventually it will sink in. I mean, maybe after enough enough people have died, I, I hope not. But uh, there there are some signs. Uh, I mean, uh, Jack was making reference to the sort of twenty fifth anniversary of uh, you know the central bank uh, model builders conference, and and there I sensed an openness of an openness of mind that I had not seen before. And I think that's all very good. And there's enormous amount of work going on still at the fringes, but it, it, is, it is definitely gathering momentum uh, to do with complex systems and trying to look at the implications of, of viewing the world in that particular way. Um, there, there's, there's various groups uh, in, in universities, outside of universities, you know, I'm thinking about the INET group that was set up by uh, George Soros, the NIAC um, exercise at the OECD. Uh, all of these people are, are trying to look at things from a systems perspective. And uh, it has certainly taken a lot longer than I would have liked. But um, it, it seems, I mean, when you go back to Thomas Kuhn, for example, the structure of scientific revolutions, you know, he points out how even in normal times, getting a paradigm shift is very, very difficult. And um, uh, Daniel Kahneman in Thinking Fast and Slow points out that in abnormal times, um, far from rejecting uh, a framework that seems to be inconsistent with the facts, uh, the normal psychological response is to rely on it even more deeply because it's all you've got in a time of total misunderstanding. So um, we've got some deep psychological uh, biases, as it were, to, to deal with. But I think if you keep on hammering away that eventually you'll get there. Uh, the worry that I have is that um, we will, in fact, by virtue of these consecutive and persistent policy errors, we'll wind up with a really big crisis at some point. 
that um, in fact will be very costly that might otherwise have been avoided. Uh, the good news, of course, will be that the crisis might itself uh, precipitate uh, an advance in terms of that paradigm change. Um, but it would be sad if if that's what it comes down to. Bill, Joseph has spoken glowingly of Fed Chair Jay Powell's ability to ignore the forecasters. Yes, he did listen to them way too much in 2020 and 2021, but at his heart, Powell is not a model man. He is a markets man. Uh, would you agree with Joseph's assessment? Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons, but it does seem as if uh, the Fed in particular is becoming less reliant on its forecasts. Uh, but of course, that that leads that also leads to a lot of problems. I mean, on the one hand, you know, you look at some past forecasts, and what you see is that they're forecasting full employment, but they're also forecasting essentially zero interest rates. And you say, well, surely there's an inconsistency there that reduces their credibility. The other thing you worry about is if they're not worrying about the forecast, they're only going to let's say stop tightening when they see the whites of their eyes, you know, which is persistent disinflation. It may well be with the lag effects and all that stuff that that's a recipe for uh, over contraction. So there's, there's, there's a lot of difficulties line that arise as well when you say, um, I'm just simply going to disregard the forecast. So I wish, I wish there were a sort of simple answer, but there isn't. Totally. And, and I think one thing is that, um, to keep in mind, is that, well, it's possible that we have these big structural shifts that are going on in the world. And if we have these regime changes, then maybe, you know, even if you did have a model forecast, maybe if you did have um, some indicators that in the past were leading, maybe they're they're not leading anymore. So it's a very difficult situation yeah. uh, to be in. And I think, Bill, you've, you've also written about many of the structural things that may be happening in the world um, huge resource demand, uh, potentially due to the energy transition. And you've also mentioned Godard's theory of aging population, demographic aging, and so forth. So we, we could be on a cusp at a, in a world, but even if we do have models, they're, they're not going to, they're going to be out of sample, so to speak. What's going on, guys? Want to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Curve. They are the one-stop shop credit cards that helps you take control of your personal finances. Here's the reason that I personally love this company. These guys are all about helping you manage and maximize your personal cash flow. We have been talking for the last couple of months about everything that the Fed is doing with raising interest rates. Obviously, this is not, no one's got a crystal ball. This is not financial advice, but I think it makes sense more than ever now for companies to be managing their cash flow and for you as an individual to be managing your personal cash flow as well. Curve makes it super, super easy to do that. Even I can do it. As a technological Philistine, they aggregate all of your spending information in one place. They make it super easy to plan. But they actually go one step further than that. They have a very cool feature called Go Back in Time, which allows you to switch payments from one card to another. So if you have an unexpected expense crop up, boom, you can move that over to your credit card, free up some cash. Or maybe you learned too late that you could have earned more rewards by spending on a different card. Boom, Curve has you covered there too. And the last thing that I'll say is, if you click the link at the bottom of this episode, you'll get $20 in Curve Cash, but you'll only get that if you click the vanity link at the bottom of this episode. Plus, that gives me the credit as well. So thank you, Curve. I appreciate you caring about cash flow. Guys, click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell my I sent you. 
so much that drives inflation has nothing to do with central banks. It is on the supply side. It has to do with demographics. Uh, Bill, you've written about how we're, we might be moving from an era of plenty to an era of shortages and that the rate of inflation that is is you know, you, you need without causing recession is maybe 3% or 4%. Or 4%. So I, my question is for you is in a move from, if we're going from an era of plenty to an era of shortages, what is the obligation of a central bank to restrain the price level? Well, I think if, if the problem is a negative supply shock, uh, then the prices ought to go up. You know, the, the higher prices, a higher price level is part of the adjustment process uh, to, it's almost as simple, I guess, as, you know, supply, simple supply and demand. You know, the price ought to go up as part of the rationing process. Having said that, uh, the real difficulty will be allowing the price level to rise, perhaps significantly, without sparking off the kind of useless wage price spiral where everybody's sort of competing to say, I know that somebody's going to get hurt by this, but it isn't going to be me, you know, so that nobody adjusts. And the upshot is that you wind up in almost, it's not impossible, you know, a kind of hyperinflationary kind of situation, which you've seen many, many times in many countries, both advanced and emerging. So um, that's going to be the really sort of tricky part is, is making that transition uh, to a higher price level in which everybody suffers um, because they have to, because the supply is, in, supply is more limited than it has been in the past. Uh, and to do that with, without uh, triggering this, this, what is essentially a useless and disruptive uh, wage price spiral. And Bill, how do you measure whether a wage price spiral is coming or, or whether we're in one? I know the Federal Reserve pays a lot of attention to inflation expectations, which they insist remain anchored. The idea is if I think inflation is going to be 10% for the next 10 years, I'm going to be demanding a lot more in wages. I'm going to be spending a lot more, and that itself will become an agent of inflation. Would you agree with the Federal Reserve assertion that long-term inflation expectations remain anchored? And you know, We could put up a chart of, yeah. uh, let's say, the five-year, five-year inflation break-even. Well, there's, there's a lot of question, interestingly enough, raised in part by a paper written by one of the Fed staff, Jeremy Rudd, about whether, in fact, there's any truth at all in the idea uh, that the target rate of inflation determines the expected rate of inflation. And when you think about the anchoring stuff, that's basically what it comes down to. And Rudd raises the question of whether, in fact, um, there may be an appearance of that during periods of time when inflation is relatively low, uh, but that in fact, the underlying reality is that most inflationary expectations are driven by recent experience of inflation. And so that if you have a, a world in which for whatever reason, inflation has been low, then people don't really think about inflation at all. And if you ask them about their expectations, it's more or less what it has been. But once you get outside of that, that realm, and BIS is, I think, chapter two of the last annual report, spent a lot of time talking about this. You can have a regime change with respect to inflation as well. So that all of a sudden you get outside of that low, that low inflation regime, and then everything is up for grabs. You know? So the expectations are, are not anchored. They're basically determined by what inflation has been. And then the, the only... This is the point that BIS would make, I think, 
is that in order to stop that from ratcheting upwards in a spiral, is that you have to show some firm resolve to resist it. And uh, indeed, that's what everybody has been saying, is that, you know, we are getting to a world where we will have a problem if we don't have one already, um, where we will have a problem. We've got to be very conscious to ensure that it doesn't, in fact, spiral. <clears throat> the worry, and again, I've written about this too, and this goes back again to complex systems, that if you've got decades, going back to something Joseph said about how the system adapts to the situation, you know, we had decades, not just of high liquidity in the system, but low interest rates and, you know, easy access to credit and all that sort of stuff. And people have adapted to it and they've taken on much, much higher levels of debt and financial institutions have become more leveraged. And, you know, the list goes on and on of all the imbalances in the financial sector. So the real worry is that if you get a big supply side shock or a series of shocks, which is what I guess I'm predicting, <clears throat> and they all sort of want successively to move the price level higher, okay, the, the, need of the need for restraint could be very, very significant. And it might indeed cause problems. You know, if you move past that tipping point of the financial side and all of a sudden you've got a, a really big problem. It'll deal with the inflation problem, all right, but it may be even bigger problems of deflation and depression in turn. So <clears throat> one of the things that I have been saying, and I know it's just a call to realism, is that as you look forward, it seems to me, we're going to have all of these negative supply side shocks that will be reducing the level and potentially the growth rate of output. At the same time, however, and this is very different from the commodity shocks of the 1970s, okay? which in a certain self were self-adjusting because in the advanced countries, it was a terms of trade shock. Okay. So that prices went up and that was part of the rationing process. You didn't have, you spent the money on gas. You couldn't buy anything else. So the economy sort of tanked and then you had disinflationary forces. Well, many of the things coming down the road, okay, it's, it's more like a war. It, it, you know, so that the, not only is it going to be a decrease in supply, there will actually be an increase in demand. So you think, for example, like uh, the demographics, the fewer workers, well, we'll need more investment in order to replace the workers. You think about um, deglobalization, well, you're going to have to rejig the, the, the supply structures, which is going to mean more investment. You think about global warming, whether it's mitigation or adaptation, you're going to need more investment. Inequality and all that stuff is going to need more government spending. So what I see coming down the road is less supply and more demand. And the demand is particularly for investment, in very large part for investment. And then the question becomes, well, how do you make that add up? And it's not so clear that if you use monetary policy to do it, or at least monetary policy alone, because higher interest rates, tighter credit conditions could actually hurt investment, whereas what we're trying to do is encourage certain kinds of investment. So it seems to me that if you've got a world in which your supply potential is more limited and you have a real need for more investment, 
you know, and in a sense, you know, climate change, avoiding that is existential. You know, the rate of return, social rate of return in those kinds of investments is extremely high. So how do you make it all add up? And one answer is you've got to cut, cut consumption. And that is, it seems to me, you're led in that direction almost inexorably by the arithmetic. And then the question becomes, one, how do you do it? And then the next and even more important question, which is a political question, is how do you sell it to people, both ordinary people, the rich and the powerful? How do you sell it to them that this is what we have to do uh, for a sustainable and resilient future? So there's some huge challenges out there. And I'm not sure that all of them can be met just by tighter monetary policy. I think that's a really good point. And the, the curious thing is, I, I don't think the markets are aware of that yet. So that, that's something that, I mean, for those of you who are more investment oriented can, can think about. I really like the point that uh, Jack and you have made about not so much about monetary policy, but there's the whole supply side as well. That that seems to be a bigger force that maybe has created an illusion of central bank power. If you think back to the past few decades, we've had pretty low inflation until recently. And as, as Jack noted, you know, a lot of that is supply side. And yeah. we've written about this. Well, we had, for example, the entry of China into the labor force. We'd have the entry of women into the labor force, tremendous supply of labor. We'd have some pretty good technological advancements as well. Invention of the internet, for example. And all those improve the supply of goods and services. So naturally, that would have a downward bias towards inflation. And the central bankers over there, you know, patting themselves on the back saying, yeah, we did this, right? But yeah. did they really do this, right? We have all these other things that are ha happening. Uh, oftentimes, central bankers like to think that, well, you know, uh, we're doing we because we are credible. We're keeping inflation expectations anchored. And because inflation expectations are anchored, well, there's no inflation. So it's really all about us. But the curious thing is that when they actually poll the public and ask them, at least in the U.S., you know, do you know about the Federal Reserve? Half the people are like, federal what? You know, is that like, <laughs> is that like the, the police the or something? Half, no. they have, the other yeah. half think it's a kind of high quality bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> well, or a hunting range or something like that. Yeah, so people have no idea what the Fed does. So obviously, uh, central bank credibility cannot be anchoring inflation expectations. Yeah. This, the, the polling does suggest that, as Bill, you noted, it's more about their own experiences. If they yeah. had inflation high inflation in the recent past, they'll likely think that inflation will persist. So it seems like we've just been living in this these past few decades of, of very uh, benign times, and we've developed theories to describe this, and we don't really know if those theories are true until they're put to the test, and we're being tested right now. And going forward, um, you know, I think they're going to be tested even more. It's going to be ultimately a political economy decision on how we... Yeah make all these investments and allocate, um, I guess, the reduction in consumption. I think President Macron recently noted this is the end of abundance. So it, it does seem like there is greater awareness within the political class that, you know, the good times are not here anymore. Right. Uh, Bill, Joseph's point is such a good one because if if half of Americans don't, don't even have never heard of the Federal Reserve, what can shape their inflation expectations other than recent inflation. So how do you explain, Bill, the fact that inflation expectations have remained somewhat anchored and actually have gone down over the past six months, let's say, even as inflation has remained stubbornly high? 
Um, is is the measuring it, system wrong? Um, I think it could be. I mean, certainly with the tips, you know, there's been such sort of <clears throat> influence by the Fed. Um, but a lot of people feel it's not a really very useful, useful measure. Um, and the markets, <clears throat> you know, the, the honest truth is that the markets can 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 get it wrong for decades at a time. I mean, Keynes said this in the general theory that uh, the, the the markets can price the long bond at a at a level which is inconsistent with full employment, as he put it, for decades at a time. And uh, we we know that um, the markets often make mistakes, and uh, it may well be that they're not being very realistic at the moment. That pe- people, this is another one of these psychological biases, you know. People tend to believe that what will happen is what they want to happen. And since nobody, since the kind of story that I'm telling you, not the kind of story you'd give to your grandchild, you know, just before she goes to sleep, um, they, they don't really, you know, they, they, don't, they don't want to hear this story. And so therefore they, they don't. Um, you know, the, the old line, if I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't have believed it. Well, it works the other way around, too. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't have seen it. So wishful thinking, I think, is, um, is, always, uh, is always something to be um, expected. You were an outspoken critic of the policy of the Federal Reserve in the early 2000s when Fed chair at the time, Alan Greenspan, held yeah. interest rates close to 1%. <clears throat> And you viewed that as a mistake because it was creating a, a debt trap, going further into the debt trap, uh, fostering a, a bubble in subprime real estate and, and structured products. And ultimately, you've pr- proved right in that. You know, that bubble popped in 2007 and 2008 and, and led to a global financial crisis. Do you have as stern of a critique for central bankers now? Or do you think that the level of, of interest rates right now is is roughly appropriate? In other words, it sounds like if you were the chair of the Federal Reserve in 2003, you would have been lobbying for higher rates. Right now, do you yeah. think that the, the system that the... Is, is it as clear that the Federal Reserve is making a mistake in either being too loose or too tight? Or is it just... Is it hazy? So I want to ask you, Bill, and then I want to hear your thoughts as well, Joseph. Yeah, I... It brings us back to something Joseph was talking about. That one of the principal reasons why we at the BIS said that the Fed and others were being too easy in, in those years leading up to the great moderation, sorry, in the years of the great moderation leading up to the great financial crisis was because it was these supply side developments that were driving prices down. And there was nothing wrong with that. You know, that... that um, the, the, the fact that prices go down, does, it is not true that it always leads to deflation and depression. It did in the 1930s, but there's a lot of empirical evidence, academic work, that indicates that that period was, was basically unique. That most periods when you get falling prices, it's because you've got positive productivity shocks that are driving the prices down. And when the Such as the 1920s. Sorry, Bill. 1920s, yeah. there was no inflation, right? <clears throat> there was no inflation in the 1920s. There was no inflation in Japan prior to the great Japanese crisis. There was no inflation in Southeast Asia prior to the Southeast Asian crisis. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> how can I say that the, the, the idea that sort of um, inflation is the only problem that we have to deal with uh, is wrong. And the idea that all deflations are bad is also wrong. 
And that's what we felt really through the latter part of the 1990s and, and into the right up to the great moderation. Now, have they, have they done it better or worse since? Well, I think the fundamental problem, going back to the beginnings of this discussion, is that the central banks underestimated the importance of supply side factors leading up to the great moderation. And since then, they've continued to ignore the implications of supply side problems. And we saw it in the, in, in, during the pandemic, for example, where they failed to recognize the extent to which the supply would be restricted uh, in the early days of the pandemic. Then they said that the, the, the increase in inflation would be only transitory, which is also wrong because of the supply side problems. And as I tried to imply earlier on, my concern is that if they continue to underestimate the importance of supply side issues, they're going to underestimate the inflationary problems coming down the line or the inflationary pressures coming down the line and the responsibility that they will bear to try to keep them under control. Um, so that's sort of the basic line that I'm taking is that they, they need to do much more work on supply side issues and the appropriate response to supply side issues. And I don't think they've given it enough thought up until now. I think Bill makes a really good point. I think, you know, a lot of, there's a big psychological component to economics and policymaking. If your formative years were, for example, in the 80s, and, you know, you're very afraid of inflation and you really want to do whatever you can to stamp it out. If your formative years were during the Great Depression, then maybe yeah. you're very afraid of uh, deflation. And if you were cut your teeth in policymaking curls during the Great Financial Crisis, then you're always afraid that Lehman is around the corner. So these events have a very powerful impact yeah, on absolutely. how they conduct policy. And maybe that's part of the reason why they're a bit more, uh, well, hesitant to... Uh, so right now the Fed is talking about moderating uh, their rates. Maybe they're afraid of financial instability and things like that. But if we're right about um, there being less supply in the future, that there are actually real resource constraints, then one way that the policymakers can allocate these scarce resources is through higher real rates. So when you have higher real rates, what that means is that there are more people who are willing to voluntarily not consume as much. So that's one way that, as Bill mentioned, we have to get people to consume less so that we can invest more. And one way to do that is to have higher real rates. Yeah. And if that's the kind of world that we're going into, then the Fed is doing the right thing. They, they should be hiking rates higher to try to get real rates higher, mm -hmm. to try to shift that um, composition from less consumption into more investment. The most recent Federal Reserve uh, press conference, FOMC press conference, Fed Chair Jay Powell seems to seems that he he thinks by far the greatest risk is the unanchoring of inflation expectations and a inflationary wage price spiral. And he said that is the risk that we're focused on. I'm paraphrasing. And oh, by the way, if we go too far. We know how to stimulate the economy. Like we're, we're not really worried about it. We look at what we did in March 2020. We just cut rates and maybe do a little bit of QE, and boom, the economy is is growing at seven percent again. You know, if we were to over tighten, we could then use our tools strongly to support the economy. Whereas if we if we don't get inflation uh, under control because we don't tighten enough, now we're in a situation where inflation will become entrenched, and the costs, the employment costs in particular will be much higher potentially. Do you think, Bill, that that has a little bit too much uh, hubris? And I, I think, you know, Fetcher J. Powell probably has, is maybe a little, in general, has less hubris than other central bankers. But in that, that particular remark, uh, seemed to be an example of the 
ontological error that, that you talk about? Yeah, well, I, I've been worried for a long time. In a, what, I've, what I've said in sort of various pres, presentations and speeches is that monetary policy, um, ultra easy monetary policy for so many years was uh, un, unneeded, basically because deflation is not a bad thing, always a bad thing. Uh, that it was ineffective uh, because the buildup of debt would gradually mean that lower interest rates were having less of a bang for the buck because everybody was so constrained by the debt levels that they'd already taken on. And then the third thing was that ultra-easy monetary policy was positively dangerous because it was creating all these financial instabilities and zombies and misallocated real resources and slowing down potential. So your question really pertains to the effectiveness of monetary policy. And I think the fact is that with all of the sort of the debt, with the debt levels that we currently have, the idea that just simply lowering rates will lead to a big rebound in spending, uh, I don't think that's obvious, to be honest. Um, I mean, in a certain sense, we've, we've been observing over the course of almost the last 10 years prior to the pandemic that you had this ultra-easy monetary policy, and yet the sort of the growth rates were really very, very slow. And um, and that went on for a long period of time. So the idea that you could just get the rates back to where they were before and all of a sudden growth will come back, um, it's not so obvious to me. And that's because we still will bear the legacy of that, all those past periods of ultra-easy monetary policy. Now, what I've been pushing uh, really for quite some period of time is that uh, the only way out of this I mean, if you've got an overhang, a dead overhang problem, uh, you can either grow out of it, but that's almost an oxymoron if your aggregate demand is being constrained by the debt. Okay, so we have a problem. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't be taking positive steps to increase supply. You know, all the structural blah blah blah. So that's that's a that's a, a problem, but um, you really have to recognize the fact. And inflation is the other way, you, of course, you can get rid of the debt overhang. They don't like that either. So the third thing is let's have orderly debt restructuring, which means face up to the fact that absent those other two alternatives, uh, these debts will not be serviced and people will go bankrupt in a disorderly way. And if that's the only choice, sorry, if, if that's the alternative, disorderly, bankruptcies. Um, the alternative that suggests itself is orderly bankruptcies. You know, so the big costs, they'll have to be taken, they'll be very unpleasant, but you can minimize the damage through orderly debt restructuring. The problem at the moment, and this has been a point that's been made by the BIS, by the IMF, particularly by the OECD, by the group of 30, we do not have in place the kind of framework for orderly debt restructuring that we need to have, either in the private, private non-financial sector, the private financial sector, nor the sovereign sector. And that's an area where people have been crying out for years for, for more to be done. And in fact, I think we've been moving backwards on that front because uh, just think about sovereign debt, for example. You know, you've now got something like 60% of all the lower income countries are either in, in debt distress or close to debt distress, according to the IMF. We don't even have any principles 
about how that debt resolution problem should be should be managed. And then you add to it the fact that there's much less transparency because there's Chinese lenders. Uh, there's a much bigger mix of public and private uh, creditors, uh, many of whom don't trust each other. We've had some of these court rulings uh, that have made, uh, you know, the, what was it, M MLV versus Argentina, you know, the, the, the whole business where you couldn't, I think the court ruled that you couldn't allow debt restructuring amongst those who had agreed to debt restructuring without paying out 100% the people who didn't agree to the debt restructuring. It's just like, a, why would anybody ever in the future agree to debt restructuring? So we're moving backwards in an area where we desperately need to move forward, but it doesn't, doesn't seem to be getting much attention. And, and Bill, what do, what do you think are the knock-on effects of restructuring? So for example, if a U.S. bank has a trillion dollars worth of loans and now that trillion dollars is only, they're only going to get 70 cents on the dollar because there's an orderly restructuring, who, who fills in that, that $300 billion gap? Well, the, um, the, the hope is that um, there will be a, um, and I don't want to sound here too much like a liquidationist, but I know that I am. It's got a bad, it's got a bad <laughs> rap ever since uh, Treasury, Treasury, ever since Treasury. Yeah. yeah. Liquidate but, everything. <laughs> uh, but in a certain sense, you have to face up to realities. And um, what it will mean is that some of the financial institutions will indeed themselves be proven insolvent. And then the management and the state, the shareholders will have to pay the price. And presumably uh, other people will then come in and say, this was a viable business once you've gotten rid of the debt and things will start over again. But some of the people will have been wiped out. But the, the point that I'm making here is that in a fundamental sense, if you believe that these debts are will not be will not be serviced and repaid, if you do believe that, what you're essentially saying is the money is gone. The only question is who's going to put it on their books, but the money is gone. It's not something we can avoid. It's happened, and that's what we have to face up to. But again, you're back to psychology again. You know, getting people to face up to these realities. You thought you were rich, you aren't. Now, we're not talking about uh, going from 30 billion one day to nothing tomorrow, like certain cryptocurrency <laughs> exchanges. But um, the, 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 there, is, there is a reality to be faced here. You made a mistake, you invested unwisely, you have to pay a price. And Joseph, is yeah, what do you think about that? And also, is the way that monetary policies, uh, uh, the monetary authorities would bring that about? Is that just hiking interest rates and keeping interest rates to a sufficiently high level so this would sort of happen by itself? Or I don't know if, if Bill is, is imagining um, more extreme measures. Joseph? Uh, so I, I think that the, the, the question that Bill's trying to solve, what do we do with the high debt burden? It's a difficult question. Restructuring is one way to go about that. Uh, but as Bill mentioned, we, we don't seem to have the mechanisms to do that at a very large scale yet. And also, I think it's very politically difficult. I mean, when you're restructuring something, there are winners and losers. And 
the people who are lending money tend to have more influence in our political system. And so I, I think they might be, I think they might be unhappy about that and they may probably are able to oppose it. The, the path of least, least resistance seems to be uh, just to inflate it away, which is another option that Bill mentioned. And I think that seems to be the, the path that we're embarking on right now. I think so. Um, that, that also has tremendous, of course, uh, political economy, uh, I guess, problems, but it seems to be the path of least resistance. And, and it's something that I think that it's more easy to implement politically. Um, you don't have to have this huge court system or anything like that. You just maybe run very aggressive fiscal policy and maybe have the central bank uh, be your sidekick for a while. Yeah, and the solution of, oh, we'll just do the 1940s again via financial repression and we'll keep interest rates lower than inflation so the debt will be inflated away, that sounds nice. But the problem, Bill, that occurs to me based on, on your theory of the debt trap is that if you keep interest rates artificially low and if you keep money artificially cheap, more debt will be created. So you really can't escape. Yeah. And one of, one of the difficulties at the moment, and I think Joseph written on this, um, is you, you, you get into the question of what does this mean on the fiscal side? So the, the, the worries that we've had up until now have been sort of excessive debt on the private sector side and maybe the sovereigns in emerging markets, but nobody's begun to question um, the solvency of um, big countries in the advanced, in the advanced market economies. And I think it's just, it's just beginning to sort of come onto people's radar that the fiscal situation in many countries is, is actually getting pretty dangerous. And the worry that one would have, or that I would have, really, is that one, the debt levels, the sovereign debt levels are very high. I mean, in the, in the States, for example, I think they've gone from $5 trillion to $25 trillion in the space that, well, since 2010, you know, there's an, an enormous expansion. So the debt levels everywhere are very high. If you add in off the off balance sheet stuff, you very quickly get into debts that are four or six times GDP, okay? So we have a big debt problem. We also have a big deficit problem. You know, it, it looks as if most countries have still not really turned that around. The, 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 the debt ratios are still rising. And now we look back and we observe the fact that over the course of the last X number of years, really since the start of the great financial contraction, that most of that increase in debt has been sucked up by the central banks. So they say QE is not government financing. It's all bought in the secondary market. But, you know, it walks like a duck and it sounds like a duck. The fact of the matter is that most of that debt has been picked up by the central banks. And then sort of to add to it all, we've got this growing interest just in the last few months about the fiscal situation, the profit situation of the central banks themselves. The central banks are now making losing money on an operational basis. On a market value basis, I've seen some calculations that Fed is already a trillion dollars underwater. Okay, does it matter? Well, it shouldn't matter. But the question is, what does it look like? What are the optics? And the worry that you have about all of this is that as the interest rates go up and worsen the sort of the, the debt um, servicing problem, 
you get into a kind of Sergeant Wallace world. Do you remember that famous article from what is it, 1981? I think it was called Some Unpleasant Monetarist Arithmetic. So you get higher interest rates to sort of dampen everything down. But the higher interest rates swell the debt service so much that people start worrying about where's the money going to come from. And the governments, in order to keep the interest rates down, are relying more and more on the central bank to pick up the debt. And people observe this. And you don't need rational expectations. You just need to see the writing on the wall. Okay? And then people start to say, I'm out of here. Sayonara. And then we have a problem. This is a kind of Latin American problem. Now, a complication, I throw this in, I think this is the good news, although I'm not entirely sure. That kind of thinking is fine for a single country. But where do you flee to if everybody's doing it? You know, so the, the dynamics of this, this is, this is really unprecedented as far as I can tell. Okay? The dynamics of how this inflation thing plays out I, I I don't know. I I simply don't know. But it is something yeah, that so, I think people are worried about more. It's about the the sovereign side of things is starting to get troublesome. Bill, it's a fantastic point you made, and I'm so glad we have Joseph here, who who is a, a true expert in the plumbing of, of central banks. Uh, so J- Joseph, the Federal Reserve and you know central banks, most of their liabilities are short term floating rate obligations to central banks. So they were paying zero and now they're paying uh, three, three, uh, close to 4%. Uh, however, the, most of their assets are longer duration fixed term assets like mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. And that is a bad combination because interest rates have gone up. Uh, so their assets are worth less and their liabilities they have to pay more and more. Tell us about the losses that the, the central banks and the Federal Reserve in particular are sustaining. And then is this a bad thing? You know, if, if there's trillions of dollars worth of losses, isn't it actually a good thing that the the Federal Reserve, who is more able to bear losses because it can print money, uh, is bearing it and not, you know, let's say you or you or me. Uh, so, so what's going on here, Joseph? And what are your thoughts? So there's two aspects to this. There's the mark-to-market losses, uh, which Bill mentioned are, you know, huge, huge. So basically, let's say the, the Fed bought treasuries back when interest rates were, let's say, uh, 1%, 2%. Now they're 3 4%. Now, if you held that treasury, then you you have huge, that treasury is worth a lot less. And so the market value of it is out lower. So you're, you're down like several hundred billion dollars from that. But the good thing is that the Fed doesn't have to mark the market. So they just hold it. So you, you never actually realize those losses. And that's fine. Uh, another thing is the operating losses, which uh, Jack and Bill, you both touched upon. And that is to say that so the Fed pays interest to people who will have money on deposit at the Fed. So those are basically commercial banks. Commercial banks have, uh, you know, $3 trillion in cash on deposit at the Fed. And other people also lend money to the Fed through the reverse repo facility. That's about $2 trillion as well. Now, that rate is an, is an overnight rate. So when the Fed hikes rates, then the interest rate payments on those, on, on those liabilities, they go higher. Now, now, a year ago, the Fed was paying about 0% on those. Now, pretty soon, they're going to be paying about 4% on those. And as Jack mentioned, their assets are fixed income treasury securities and uh, if, you're, if your income is, let's say, 2% from your treasury securities and you're paying 4%, then you, you obviously have an operating loss. And all that money that they're paying out to, to the banks and to the reverse repo facility, that's going to be printed. 
And so you go, you go back to the Sergeant and Wallace universe that Bill mentioned, where uh, basically the central bank has to keep printing money and more money into the system is, you know, perhaps inflationary. And let's say we go to interest rates 5%, 6%. Well, then the Fed is going to have to be printing hundreds of billions of dollars uh, a year just to pay interest pay payments and all that money goes to the economy. Uh, one of the interesting points that I've heard on Twitter from Sid Perdue was that, well, because a lot of the banks, for example, are receiving that interest rate payment, what, we are, what you're ultimately doing is that you're increasing the retained earnings or which ultimately increases the capital of the banking sector, which means that they have more capacity to lend as well. So there is that banking sector channel that that, that figures in. Um, the Fed will tell you that these operating losses that they have have no impact on monetary policy, and, and they're right. They could, the Fed has a money printer, and they can always, always afford interest rate payments. But there is that real economy impact and that psychological perception that Bill mentioned that you know people are going to be start worrying. You keep printing money, interest rates are higher, and maybe they want to get out uh, of the debt market, for example, or seemingly everyone is the same. So maybe they go into equities or some other tangible asset that can't be easily printed. So we, we talked about the risk that the uh, inflation will, will be sustained and you know the Federal Reserve will have to remain very high. What about the risk, though, that the, infl the economy globally is slowing immensely quickly? Activity in interest rate sectors like automobiles and housing has fallen off a cliff, and many people are already losing their jobs you know, even if it's not showing up in the data. So uh, what do you, how do you guys sort of handicap the odds that we're headed for quite a steep recession that will not be short and shallow, but will be deep and prolonged? And that the mistake that central bankers now are making is actually that monetary policy is uh, too tight. Uh, Bill, let's start with you and then Joseph. I certainly would be a bit more careful going forward. I think some of the arguments that people are using for uh, being careful in, in further tightening are, are totally legitimate. Um, there's this business about the lags. You know, a lot has been done already. Um, the fact that it's kind of global, you know, that no one country has been tightening. They've all been tightening. Uh, fiscal tightening is occurring uh, virtually everywhere as well, almost everywhere. Um, there is all of this financial fragility that one worries about. Uh, we're starting to see uh, big cracks there. Uh, Desmond Lachman makes the point that uh, if you add up all of the market value losses, and this is a number that's a couple of months out of date, you know, in the U.S. alone, we're talking about $14 trillion, and he figures that could take standard consumption function could take 2% of GDP right there. So there's all sorts of, um, you know, monetary conditions, indices of Titan. Think about mortgage markets. You know, that uh, the, the, they've, they've tightened a lot more, really, than one might have thought, given how far the Fed's gone. Um, so there's a lot of arguments for, 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 for caution. Um, but then the next question becomes, um, even as the economy sort of, if the economy does sort of turn down, which I think it probably will, and the unemployment rate eventually starts to move upwards, um, the question at issue is what's the mentality of people uh, and their willingness to accept uh, the losses or whether they will continue to fight them through demanding higher prices and higher wages uh, regardless. And there I think the jury is the jury's still out. Um, I, 
I just sort of throw this in at the end for what it's worth. I mean, people said to Paul Volcker, you know, in uh, 1981, that uh, tightening would, um, you know, the Phillips curve was very shallow, uh, very flat, and that the inflation expectations were anchored at a high level, and that it would be terribly difficult to get inflation down. And it turned out both those propositions were wrong, that there was quite a, quite a response. I mean, there was a big recession, but nowhere near as much as people thought would be required to get inflation down. And it really turned around the inflation expectations, too. So who, who you know, who knows? But I guess my, my bet would be we will have a fairly deep uh, recession and that it will have the kind of impact on inflation that you would anticipate or maybe more than people would anticipate. But then the problem is you've still got all of this other stuff going on that I talked about before, these negative supply side shocks and this big increase in the rate of return on certain kinds of investments. And how will all that play out? So it's... Right. Joseph? Yeah, so I agree with Bill's word view that going forward, we're going to be in a world that's more real resource constrained. There's going to be less supply. And if you think about what growth is, you can have growth um, one of two ways. You can either have a more inputs. So you put more, uh, let's say, raw materials and get more widgets out, or you can have more productivity. You get more output out of the same inputs. So if you're going into a world where you have fewer growth in inputs, then naturally you can't expect there to be constant economic growth. So having a slowdown economic growth or even persistent, uh, I don't know, recession is not necessarily something that we can avoid, I think, if we're heading into that world. But I think what people most care about when they think about recession is the human toil on it. That is to say that a lot of people will lose their jobs. But if we're heading into a world where we have a declining labor force, then we can have recessions where people still have full employment simply because the recession is caused by uh, a lack of availability of, of workers. So if that's the case, I don't, I don't think that we should be as worried about recessions as we used to be, yeah. simply because the human toil will be very limited yeah. everywhere I see. So this whole year, I've actually traveled extensively. And everywhere I go is help wanted in many languages everywhere. across the world. And that's, that's a real global phenomenon. The baby boomers are retiring and there's yeah. not enough people. So we're not being going to be able to grow as much because we don't have as many workers, but the workers won't suffer as much because the demand for labor is so strong. Yeah. Mm. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. But my, my final question is, Bill, earlier you referenced the stunning collapse of FTX, one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges. You both have worked in traditional finance. Bill, you, you have you know, a legendary career uh, as, a, as a central banker. But, so you know, crypto is, is not both of yours uh, you know, world. But I, I still I feel compelled to, to, to ask you both just because the financial instability within the cryptocurrency industry is so immense. And of course, cryptocurrency, the crypto world, unlike the traditional financial world, does not have central banks. Uh, you know, I think the central banks core, the reason that central banks were, were created in order to stem financial crises, I think that central banks often are, are quite successful in that. And crypto kind of needs a central banker, but there is no lender of last resort. There is no buyer of last resorts. The person wh whom was sort of thought of as the central banker of the crypto world, the JP Morgan, if you will, John Pierport Morgan, who, who bailed out the financial system in 1907, turned out not to, he turned out to be sort of the, the most insolvent and fraudulent uh, of, of everything in crypto. So uh, I, I don't know if, if 
you you guys have have any any thoughts on this about the contagion within the crypto world? About my sense in looking through the crypto world and having interacted with some of the people there and hearing their thoughts on Twitter and elsewhere is that a big part of crypto seemed to be a fundamental misunderstanding of how banking and the monetary system worked. So I think in a sense that's kind of a failure of our education institutions for for all these people to believe in crypto and move towards them. So it uh, looks like that's being corrected. Uh, if they're interested in learning about Tradify, they should definitely follow uh, forward guidance and follow uh, you know, Dr. White and myself, and maybe they'll they'll realize that, you know, actually the fiat system does kind of work. It, there are good things about it. I guess I, 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 I'm too old to sort of know that, know that you picked up on it very nicely and very politely um, to, to know the details of all of this stuff. But I do tend to think of the, the whole sort of crypto movement as being a byproduct of the uh, monetary environment uh, that we set up. And it was extremely easy for people to start doing things that were really inventive and uh, and also very risky. And uh, so um, that's what's happened here. The chickens are coming home to roost in part. Um, I would note that um, the, the the fraud, particularly, you know, the sort of the Larry Summers said this the other day. The best thing to do is think about this as Enron all over again. Um, this stuff happens in the later stages of these expansionary periods of monetary policy, you know, mania's panics and crashes. The whole yeah. chapter about late late expansion fraud. So the, the, we can expect to get a lot more on that front, I think, before this, this story is, is, is over. The, the, the other point, of course, is that crypto was responding to recognition of shortcomings in some of the current systems, payment systems in particular, and back office systems. And uh, so, you you know, there, there, there are new, there are aspects of this that I think will prove to be very useful. But sort of independently run currencies uh, might not be, might not be part of it. Yes, I, I will say having been a casual observer of the crypto um, bull market pop bursting in 20, late 2017 and early 2018, uh, people then said, oh, crypto is never coming back. And it seemed, it seems that way now people say crypto is never coming back, but uh, hope springs eternal. So I think they're, you know, they're, it, I think it will go darker in crypto, but um, yeah, uh, we, we, will, we will see how, how it goes. Uh, but, but gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you both here. You know, to, to be to be frank with you both, uh, you both came on this podcast at a time when the podcast was sort of getting its sea legs, and I feel like you're coming on both you know with your level of analysis and uh, uh, bills or your your pedigree, your accomplishments, Joseph, your understanding of the monetary system. You sort of really put my podcast on on the map. So I'm I'm grateful to you both, and I'm grateful that you guys could could meet each other because I think you both have a uh, great frameworks for under, understanding what's what's going on. Um, Joseph, people can find your work at FedGuy.com. You're the author of Central Banking 101. Your Twitter handle is at FedGuy12. And uh, uh, Dr. White, people can find your writings and everything at uh, WilliamWhite.ca. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Congrats on your podcast, Jack. And Dr. White, you have to get on Twitter. It's a good discussion. You, you like it. <laughs> some of it, some of it. <laughs> Shall do.